Hi and welcome to Newsreel. I'm Joe. And I'm Neil. And this week we're going to be discussing the so-called clash of civilizations. We're going to do this because it's obviously dawned on us before now, but frankly, at this point, it's mission accomplished. We're going to try and basically make the case that it's already happened, even if, you know, solutions that people want or the solutions that governments try to come up with to ameliorate or improve or remove altogether all the suffering produced by this clash of civilizations, it's too late. I mean, it's going to unfold as it is doing and probably continue to get worse. Um, what's the saying? The horse has already bolted. So um, I'll tell you what, what sparked it for me this week was a small bit of data <clears throat> in one news story, but uh, it's like like you were saying earlier, it's like a microcosm of just so much that is so wrong. And I'm going to ask uh, Scotty, who's in the studio with us, can you pull up this article from RT about this Yazidi girl? Um, here we go now. Former Yazidi sex slave recalls horror of meeting her ISIS rapist in Germany. Now, even if, like, we just start with the basic assumption that her story could be made up, you know, whatever, there's plenty of evidence that this kind of thing was going on. I mean, uh, ISIS slash other mercenaries, al-Nusra, whoever, were going around and using rape as, as a weapon of, simply because they enjoyed it as well, of course. And they practically industrialized the process when they would take whole towns and villages hostage. They would take young women and girls, um, the sick pedos. Um, I think she's actually Iraqi. So this was obviously going on across the border. The Yazidis, there's a large pocket of them in Iraq. Um, not so sure about Syria. Anyway, so she is victim to these people. She gets out somehow um, from Iraq. Her name was, let's see, her name is... Uh, her surname is Ashwak. Um, I don't think I can find her first name. Anyway, oh, excuse me, that's her first name, Ashwak Talo. So she is one of those who gets out, and she gets to Germany. And I'm not sure when, maybe three years ago, maybe with the wave in 2015. Um, she's living somewhere near Stuttgart, and one winter night, a car pulls up beside her. A bearded man steps out, takes off his glasses, and asks her, can I ask you a question? Are you Ashwak? And she recognizes him. It's the someone, it's basically a former, former, in quotes, ISIS fighter who had been her rapist, who had bought her, allegedly, for a hundred bucks at a slave market in Iraq in 2015. And he is now in Germany as a refugee, enjoying the same freedoms and privileges afforded to the refugees mm -hmm. and the reason that's like what the hell is because okay if this is a one-off case okay if this is you know as the story spun or even if this particular story would turn out to be untrue it makes you go oh my god how often is that happening and thus what kind of statistics are involved for that chance opportunity to happen mm -hmm. you've got to have thousands it, the, the the worst fears of the so-called right movement on this have got to be in the ballpark or they're all well it's not necessarily a statistical situation but rather that in germany for example uh, all of the refugees that were brought in 2015 and then 2016 some people say up to two million people um from various different places but a lot of them from iraq and syria um 
all of them would be funneled by state apparatuses, you know, by the immigration department of immigration, let's say, whatever, in the German government that was overseeing it, uh, would have funneled them into specific areas, specific places, and would set up, uh, would have set up, um, you know, housing and that kind of stuff to, to, for when they arrived. And also a lot of those people would tend to congregate together. Okay. So you have pockets or, or you know, big... So there's uh, a chance that they, 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 those two came together from the same geographic region, thus in the same convoy and ended up in the same allocated place in right. Germany. Right, not at the same time, but in the same area or, or just that, you know, they're all in Germany. Refugees aren't being, they're not being farmed out. We have one refugee staying with one German family in one place, part of the country and another one. And, you know, they're being put into centers, into <clears throat> small kind of villages or camps or whatever. Uh, it, at least initially, you know, and then they would tend to stay together as well. You know, I mean, they're, they're coming to a foreign country. They don't speak the language. They don't really, you know, it's a different culture, all that kind of stuff. So um, people in that situation tend to stick with the people that they know, obviously, or that they that are culturally conspecific, let's say. But um, she's left Germany. She's back she's in Iraq because of this. Yeah, because of that. Um, but she's not the only one who returned, and most of the returnees are from the countries that are contiguous with Syria, not from Europe. But there is a lot of stuff uh, from people who have returned to Iraq and Syria. Um, I've read stuff where they're saying, you know, Europe is not a place for Muslims, and it's not because of the Europeans. Hmm. It's because of they say they, they there's extremist interpretations of Islam that they're inter that they're meeting in Europe are shocking to them, right, so they're going home. Mean, right? Yeah. It's uh, just just on the on the point I was making previously as well about the concentration of refugees in particular areas in different European countries when they arrive. Uh, that also leads to a situation where um, you know any criminality that is involved or uh, with the refugees that come with the crime, if they started acting up and acting out and that kind of stuff, uh, it tends to be centered. Uh, there tends to be a lot of them one, in one area, if you know what I mean, or, or, or the fact that they all, a lot of them go to one town causes an outcry, uh, a justified outcry, I suppose, from uh, the local population and stuff, and then that gets into the media, and then you can easily imagine that this is, that this, for example, this one, this in this one town or city <clears throat> in Germany or France, uh, where there's a concentration of refugees, you can then kind of erroneously extrapolate out to that this is happening all across Europe, but it's okay. not. They're being concentrated in, in, in particular areas, you yeah. know, because you can't just let... I mean, obviously, there's some organization of, of, of the refugee problem. They're being brought in, and not just getting to the border and saying, okay, go wherever you want type of thing, you know. Uh, even if they, even if that was the case, they would tend to all stick in a, in a group, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. safety and numbers and all that kind of stuff, like I was saying. So uh, it's it's there's a lot of stuff to be kind of weeded out in terms of the way the media is presenting it, but at the same time, it's a... It's a problem, you know. Um, it's it's it kind of goes to the heart. The, the idea of, of allowing in <clears throat> a lot of refugees, let's call them, well, let's not even call them refugees. Let's call them immigrants to to, to a large extent. Um, okay, refugees as well, but refugees because of Western-backed wars mm -hmm. in in these countries that they're coming from. But this is. This has really, if people need to remember, you need to, now and again, you need to stop and remind yourself where this came from, where it started, and why it's happening the way, the way it is today, and why there's this kind of clash of civilizations, or burgeoning clash of civilizations in Western countries. And it's, uh, <clears throat> it's really only kind of skyrocketed, or the, the outcry, or the polemic has reached a kind of fever pitch over the past few years, really, since 
uh, a lot of these refugees started coming from places like Syria and Libya that were just over the past five or six or seven years bombed and invaded and attacked and overrun by Western-backed uh, uh, jihadi types, you know. So, and this has spilled over into a into the whole polemic that we're having to deal with today. We have the right and the left and the conservatives and the and the lefties in in Western European countries, to some extent in the US as well, but primarily in Western European countries, where they're kind of at each other's throats. So there's a, there's this clash of civilizations because there's there's two clashes of civilization in a certain sense. One of them is false in that <clears throat> it's not Muslims versus the West at, on the on on the ground, if you know what I mean, because there simply isn't enough Muslims coming into Western countries for there to be any kind of a clash of civilizations. What you're actually having is a clash of ideologies. The clash of civilizations, civilizations has given rise to a clash of ideologies that uh, among Western European people, among, amongst Christians, amongst conservatives and liberals, uh, well, nominally Christians, can't, can't, can't really call them Christians anymore, I suppose. No, right? we're all whole, secular now. Right? The whole Catholic Church business going on as well. Yeah. It's just like that's gone down the toilet. We're, we're, we're godless at this point. Mm -hmm. um, but it's so, and, and the place of uh, religious, uh, a clash of religious ideology, let's say, as you had in, in, in times gone by, now you have a clash of political, I suppose, ideologies or worldviews, basically, let's say. And that's what's really... That's that's the real threat to Western societies today is this tension uh, between Western between European peoples and people in the U.S. Let's say who are not refugees, who are not Muslims. Let's say so. Um, but it really uh, it also has a spillover, obviously. Then in in for example in, in European countries you have racism on the rise, and racism is as a result of for example then take a place like the U.K. that has a lot of kind of um, uh, children, or a, a lot, a lot of non-English, non-white, Caucasian mm -hmm. English people, Pakistanis, Indians, and and others, but primarily Pakistanis, Indians who've been there for a long time. Most of them, having been born in the UK, their parents came in, in times gone by again because of the the British Empire. Um, but that is a problem, a flashpoint in those kind of countries as well. You know, where the anger or the fear provoked by the influx of refugees from war zones like Syria and Libya and Iraq. Um, and from that, very different places, culturally. Right. Culture Local immigration, or, or recent immigration, is causing an upswell of, let's say, latent, if you want to call it that, latent racism. Existing Exist, existing, yeah. well, not even existing to some extent, but it's well, okay, existing, but it's exacerbating it. Yeah. In in the case of England, against between white people and people who then join the English Defence League and white nationalist kind of like, you know, England for the English type organisations against Pakistanis and Indians who were born in England as well and, yeah. and know nothing else, you know, and speaking the same accents right. and all that. So it's not as simple as just a clash of civilizations, as if there's some kind of horde coming into into Europe and and this is going to destabilize destabilize our countries and and wreck our cultures and there's going to be class or yeah. racial or, or or ethnic kind of strife. It's it's really it's it's worse than that effectively. Yeah, it's, it's almost like a, relatively, it's like a homeopathic dose mm. of something that could potentially that be much worse. Rest, yeah. That, that excited everything else, the pre-existing fracture lines and so on. I mean, let's just say it right here. The, the bulk, the brunt of this the crisis 
in the Middle East of the displacement of millions of people. I mean, some of the figures are nuts, 12, 15 million just from Syria. It, and it's, it's a compounding issue as well in that region. When Iraq was invaded and occupied, X million, I can't know the figure, went from Iraq across the border into Syria, where they were basically housed and accepted, and no one ever worried about it. But it was causing serious problems in Syria, but not so serious because at the same time, they were at least our neighbors. You know, they were from the same, originally the same Ba'athist regime was in both countries. And then Syria got hit. So where did they all go? Well, they went well, to Lebanon. Lebanon, a tiny a province of a country, got a million people. Right. Jordan, another million. Turkey, three million or more even. So that, that was just emphasize that that's the brunt. So yes, the Western Europe and North America have had a tiny comparison. On the one hand, you want to say, well, what are you whining about? The real problem is actually far more local. But it's still enough people. To, but, to cause, to spark off and then set off all these other, other problems. But those, those countries, Turkey, uh, Jordan, uh, Lebanon, have a carrying capacity for, for refugees. You know what I mean? There's a limited carrying capacity. Yeah. And, and you push enough, re- refu- enough, enough refugees from Syria and Iraq, etc. Well, first of all, like you said, Iraq, the Iraq war went on for, what, like 10 years, <clears throat> destroyed the country, caused a lot of refugees into, into these other countries. But then you, then you destroy Syria, that was hosting refugees from Iraq, and it becomes a war zone. So where do they go then? Yeah, they go to Turkey, go to Lebanon. But then, mm-hmm. you know, there's just too many, basically, and you have a, a flow out of, of those countries towards towards Europe. Of course, someone's facilitating that as well. It seems someone is making it possible for those people to come. Certainly at the level of uh, European government policy in places like Germany and France uh, in particular, uh, and at, at the EU level, mandating that EU countries take some of these, take these refugees, you know, um, and, and that's what's happening. That's what, there's a lot of backlash against that now as well, you know. Um, but a lot of it is, a lot of it's manufactured though in a certain sense. I mean, like the sentiment is manufactured and there's something else going on, you know, there's something else rising up within the population. You know, this is a trigger for something. It's being provoked in a certain way. You could call it latent racism or latent kind of, or, or maybe, I don't know, maybe there's a, a disenchantment amongst the ordinary average people. Maybe the time is right in history for European people to uh, get all kind of up in arms and, and, uh, have a bit of social chaos, uh, so, social conflict or, or social strife, you know. Uh, I don't know why. Certainly, a lot of refugees coming into European countries is not negligible. But the fact that it's provoking this kind of, like, division, you know, like, like I was saying, between left and right, seems to be... I don't know. I don't know where that's coming from, you know. I mean, it's not necessary, but it's also useful in a certain sense because it exposes the kind of what lies beneath or what has always laid beneath in in, mm-hmm. in, in in Western countries and it has brought it out, you know, this is what's in people. So I'm kind of torn between it being deliberately provoked by the media, for example, and politicians in the people, you know, whipping them up into a frenzy and it also being part of uh, a kind of fundamental difference uh, amongst human beings, like, and we've talked in this in this in the show previously about the different kind of taste buds, the different kind of worldviews, you know, the different reactions that people have to, uh, you know, to life itself and to their life experiences. You know, whether basically they fall into a category of conservative or more on the left, basically just in terms of how they see the world. You know, should we be yeah. conservative? Should we stick to our own group, or should we be embracing of of, of should, we, should we embrace uh, other cultures and multiculturalism and all that kind of stuff? And that's not something that's just manufactured. Um, 
well, I mean, it's something that exists, obviously, uh, conservative ideas uh, that are promoted by media and newspaper, but it's also something that's very fundamental to human beings. And it's, the point is that our, there seems to be different types of human beings. You know, they're kind of like, kind of like a species, you know, of uh, a species of bird with different characteristics, a species of animal with the same species, but they have different characteristics, you know. Um, and, and in humans, it's, it's about, <clears throat> it actually makes them, uh, or leads them to uh, want a different type of life. You know, it's quite, it, it's, I think it's pretty different from animals in the sense that you have different species of animals, different colors of, of birds, for example, and different shapes of birds and of different animals. But generally speaking, all birds, um, you know, fly and, and, and do generally the same things. Maybe you could say it's like birds that eat meat and birds that are vegetarian, <laughs> meat eater birds and vegetarian birds, you know, that difference within birds, there's that difference within human beings as well. But in human beings, it gets a much more complex complex expression because we're, we can express in all, in all these kind of complex ways, but it can also be manipulated. Yeah, and, and, and manipulated and, 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 and simplified into them versus us, right. foreigners versus us, yeah, which is where we're at today. And it's it's just, there's no way out of it. People are going to go through living with this as if it's a reality when, with all we know, with all you just said, it's not the actual reality of the real differences between people. Um, yeah, well, it's, it's a symptom of the of difference between people, but those differences between people have always ex existed. And maybe you could put it down ultimately to the reason why there's, there's been conflict throughout human history. Mm. It could be, it's possible that certainly it played a part in the conflicts that have uh, existed in you know, throughout history, uh, why people fight each other, why, why can't they always all just get along type thing, you know? Um, well, because of kind of fundamental differences, and I don't know what that is, is based on. It You could say it's a, you could even get into it, it, it being a spiritual kind of thing uh, of some description or something very fundamental and the essence of a person. Obviously, you, can, you could describe it in terms of genetics or something, but nobody's gone as far as to actually define different uh, the differences, the genetic differences between people, whether that what makes them be conservative or, 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 or more kind of left-leaning, you know. Uh, but it's definitely there, you know. Uh, but it doesn't mean that people have to, obviously it doesn't mean that people have to be, have to, have to engage in conflict with each other periodically or there doesn't have to be major kind of, major conflicts or major wars uh, between human beings. It doesn't have to be that way. People could certainly find that find common ground and try and understand each other and take the best of both and all agree on uh, something that's good and, and positive for society as a whole, you know? Because obviously, when society sends into conflict, for whatever reason, it's not good for anybody. Mm -hmm. Maybe a few at the top who are able to remain above the fray uh, and then come back afterwards and, and retain their positions of power afterwards, but... Uh, for the vast majority of people in society, conflict doesn't matter what, uh, you know, whether you can argue one is right or wrong or whatever. I mean, it's bad for everybody, you know, so everybody should be invested, everybody in society should be invested in, in making sure that social conflict does not occur. But today they're being uh, encouraged to to engage in it and to almost to want it to happen. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, Oh, you said in, in another way, you've said before that um, it's almost as if events have conspired to produce this kind of situation. Um, we published an article earlier this week titled, Is There a Hidden Hand Behind the So-Called, in quotes, Clash of Civilizations in Europe? 
Um, it lays out a case for there being one. Um, before we get into that, though, I, the clash of civilizations, the term is, as used today, it's derived from Samuel Huntington. It, it's actually older than that, but he was the one who certainly popularized it. Um, based on an article he wrote, which became a book in the early and mid-90s, um, I just want to read out a brief passage from a, the Wikipedia page on this concept, Clash of Civilizations. Huntington believed that while the age of ideology, in the sense of communism versus capitalism and or Western democracy, while the age of ideology had ended, the world had only reverted to a normal state of affairs characterized by cultural conflict. In his thesis, he argued that the primary axis of conflict in the future would be along cultural lines. As an extension, he posits that the concept of different civilizations as the highest rank of cultural identity will become increasingly useful in analyzing the potential for conflict. At the end of his 1993 Foreign Affairs article, Huntington writes, this is not to advocate the desirability of conflicts between civilization it's just to set forth a descriptive hypothesis as to what the future may be like. Mm. I don't mean to advocate this kind of thing, but clearly it's as if someone took that and said, hmm, that's a great idea. Mm -hmm. We'll just foment it. Um, yeah. And the under, but he was onto something about the underlying cultural lines that roughly, and he, in his thesis, he has world maps where he carves them out. Roughly, the West is sort of North America and Europe and maybe Australia and New Zealand. <clears throat> then there's a Muslim world, North Africa, Middle East, some of the yeah. Far East. Um, and they have different cultures. Different cultures. And they're not necessarily compatible. He said there were nine, roughly. Yeah. And, they're, and they're not necessarily compatible. Or they could be the cause of conflict, potentially. Um and, just, and that, it's an argument against globalization then. And it's a, it's a fundamentally conservative argument. That yes. It's, it's being, it takes a realistic approach, let's say, and you can call it cynical or pessimistic or atavistic or whatever, but maybe it's, maybe it's true to say that it's, it's realistic. He was uh, certainly on the conservative side right. of the spectrum of yeah. U.S. That is, tanks. That's realistic to say that people basically cannot, uh, you can't have this blending of cultures, that there will be conflict as a result, and therefore, from the conservative point of view, you should uh, you should keep yourself um, keep keep cultures separate separate. That doesn't mean there has to be there can't be trade and all that kind of stuff, but it would be based on uh, you know acceptable kind of rules and regulations and um, agreements between those cultures. But there would not be this blending that you have, and obviously globalization is. Uh, by definition, or implies a blending of cultures, because once you spread your culture all around the world, or your by way of like your your companies, your multinational corporations and stuff, well, then after X number of decades of that happening, you're going to have this blending. You're going to have people who, if I if if a big, for example, Western multinational corporation goes and employs a bunch of people and they take their culture with them and you know like coca-cola takes its coca-cola culture over to over to Asia or into the Middle East or into Africa and the people. They're, they're recruiting from the local population and those people get uh, an idea or a sense of that culture and stuff. And then there's obviously in the modern era, people who are working for one of the big multilateral corporations from the West, uh, if they're working in, in Asia, if they're local from Asia, they're going to have a trip over to America for some kind of training seminar to see something or other, right? So mm -hmm. it, it implies this blending 
uh, the whole world being one big happy family type thing. And the point the point people raise is that well, is is that is that feasible? Is it possible for the human human beings to be one big happy family when there are kind of foundational differences between human beings and they should be respected? Because if you don't respect them, you're going to have to impose a unifying uh, kind of culture or worldview on everybody to get everybody to to get along. And then because because the, what you're actually doing is you're trying to overwrite a very fundamental aspect of <clears throat> certain types of human beings when they're, gonna ha- they're going to have a bad reaction to that. And then you're going to create conflict. The thing we'll never know is, would globalization, the exchange of goods, eventually people for, to, to go and work elsewhere, and even following behind that, norms and ideas of governance and all this stuff, would that have not continued gradually working and increasing more or less without at least severe disruptions had it not been for the war on terror. We'll never yeah. know that now because at kind of at its peak, I mean, there was already a kind of a backlash, but it was so, so, so lame compared to what we know today. There was a small backlash against globalization, with, especially with lefties. You remember the Seattle riots and mm, stuff like G7 that. And um, but then 9-11... And you have terrorism everywhere. It's all Muslims doing it mm. in the narrative level well, it anyway. A... And repeated provocations yeah. by bombing Muslim countries. Well, the war, the war on terror, 9-11. If somebody wanted to sabotage globalization, so yeah. to speak, that would be the way to do it. Sabotage globalization in the sense of uh, we're one big happy family and let's all get along. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily sabotage it in terms of uh, multinational corporations getting access to countries around the world, you know, because mm-hmm. in fact that was part of uh, that's 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 a part of globalization, and it's also a part of or it's the main aspect of globalization. Let's say the economic uh, globalization of the world. Um, but nine eleven uh, didn't necessarily stop. At least in theory, it wasn't designed. It wasn't obvious that it was going to stop uh, multinational corporations from Western countries getting access to the rest of the world. In fact, it was going to facilitate it, right? Because you go. Under the name of the war on terror, you go and bomb other countries, you pacify them in that way. Maybe you have a few coups, you get rid of certain governments, you put in new governments, and they're more amenable to Western multinational corporations getting access to their countries. In fact, that's some of the some of the pre nine eleven certainly anyway the, the reason for for U.S. in particular uh, involvement in countries around the world was because the country in, that was being targeted for kind of some kind of invasion or a, a regime change or a coup or whatever or destabilization, that country was not playing ball with American interests, let's say, American corporate interests. Uh, so that's why you go around the world and get rid of these uh, leaders of certain countries, you demonize them, get rid of them, and then you allow your, your corporation to get in. But yes, it has kind of, it's the war on terror has has a very negative aspect to it as well, in the sense of, as, as we've seen, we're, what, 17 years into it now, and it's just not just a war on terror. 9-11 provoked <clears throat> or launched a war on Muslim terrorism, which has obviously uh, evolved into uh, a war on Muslims, and not just a war on, well, it became a war on Muslims. It was implied in war on Muslim terrorism for the average person, well, that's Muslims are bad, right? So it basically was a, it was a campaign, it launched a campaign to demonize Muslims uh, in, in the minds of Western citizens. <clears throat> and there are quite a few Muslims already, were quite a few Muslims already living in, in Western countries. So that was like a really bad idea, uh, just on paper, you know. 
when you've got, like, take France, for example, 15% of the population is Muslim. And France is going to take part in a war on terror that demonizes Muslims. Right. And demonizes them to the French non-Muslim population. This is, this is what I'm so not getting. How, how could so somebody, foreseeable what would happen. Yeah, exactly. Well, how could somebody not figure out that that was, that was going to create social conflict in a country like France? And there's other countries, obviously, as well. Um, or any country that has a significant, even significant being, you know, 5% of the population Muslim. Why would you launch a war that demonizes those people and then expect your population to not look disfavorably in some way or other on Muslims and then launch a campaign at the same time when you realize that that's happening, that people in your country are now looking, not looking very favorably on Muslims. And they're starting to vote for new, different, usually far-right parties. Right, well then you, uh, exactly, they, they do that and then, but then you also launch another campaign to force people to be ashamed of having negative views of Muslims. And that's just that. It's kind of like gaslighting, or and you go it's kind out of, of your crazy way. Making. You go out of your way <clears throat> to remove the already existing rules, regulations, police orders, border control, etc., to specifically let a large volume in all of a sudden. Right. And is it any wonder people are like, well, well yes, there's a hidden hand. I can't say who, but mm. there is obviously. But then a hidden hand. That would, there's certainly a hand in it. But then now, so I'm not sure it's very hidden. <clears throat> okay. Who's the hand? What's going on here? Well, it's... Um, <clears throat> Who or what? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's obvious that it's, it's, po- it's politicians and people behind the politicians, the eminent screes behind thrones and stuff, the unelected officials and stuff who, who pull the strings, you know, um, who, who do pull strings, think tanks, people. There's obviously, in any in Western countries, in Western democracy, such as, such as it is, a lot of government policy <clears throat> is made by people who are not elected, which is kind of a subversion, pretty clear subversion of democracy, the idea of democracy in itself. I mean, democracy is difficult enough where um, the people are supposed to elect officials who then and then trust that those elected officials will uh, do the will of the people, which is a bit of a joke to begin with. Um, but when you realize that the majority of policy that is made is made by people who were never elected, who never presented themselves to the public to say, uh, can you you know, vote me in or I'll be your representative. They never offer themselves for, for election or to be, to, to be the representative of the people. Then it's, a, it's obviously a complete subversion. There's no, no longer uh, democracy, even in the basic idea of it, it doesn't exist anymore. So... Um, yeah. Where were we? Well, Pierre posited in his article that you would have groups that are set up or that are vested in facilitating one side of the ideology, right, which is open borders, um, uh, save the refugees, all this stuff. And on the other hand, you would have the response to that, who would have the same or similar avenues of backing, particularly financial, that would, mm. be, that would be the political parties or political movements in Europe especially mm. that have come up in, as a reaction to this very same problem. And Pierre posited that in both cases, you can find that there are Zionists or Zionist-aligned mm-hmm. people 
or groups who um, they're, ost- they're ostensibly w- you know working at completely different ends of the spectrum, but in the end, both things end up going hand in hand. Yeah, well, there's there's actually there's an interesting <clears throat> story from a couple of months ago. Um, <clears throat> uh, Tommy Robinson. Now everybody, I suppose, well, most people know who Tommy Robinson is. He's like the poster boy for the um, white for English nationalism, and he was put in prison. Um, a few months ago, for um, what was it called for? for basically, for influencing uh, influencing the jury because he was filming right. slash recording live streaming right uh, a court outside case. a court case a court case that had to do with immigrants or non-white English people who were accused of running kind of rape gangs basically yeah and so he was. He was supposedly live streaming to Facebook, and that was influence, potentially influencing the the jury, and therefore he was arrested and put in prison. And he had also been up on the same uh, uh, charge uh, previous year, and he had been just got uh, a warning or something, but he was on some kind of parole uh, since then. So then he did it again, basically, and he um he he got put in jail. He got put put away for like. 13, 16 months or whatever. Got yeah. <clears throat> but then there was a massive campaign to release him and this was unfair. He was just, you know, he was just trying to bring attention to the, uh, to what was going on in the court case. He wasn't making any statements or whatever, blah, 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 blah. So, um, <clears throat> the interesting thing uh, that I, I saw the article that, that I'm referring to was um, mentioned that the, f- uh, no, not the Foreign Policy Research, the Middle East Forum <clears throat> <clears throat> an organization, it's basically a think tank, an American conservative think tank called the Middle East Forum, uh, was founded in 1990 by a guy called Daniel Pipes. And Daniel Pipes is a, a Jewish American um, historian, but he gave up lecturing. Uh, he was working in, in academia. He gave it up and moved into Canada. He, he was an advisor to George W. Bush for a while. Um, but he's basically a anti, he's called an anti, anti-Islamist. <laughs> Uh, he's and obviously he's Jewish and he supports Israel, and so he's politicking, has been politicking for the past fifteen years or so, um, and against Islam and for the West and for for Israel basically. And he's so he's described as this, you know, Islamophobe effectively. But the interesting thing is, so he runs this Middle East Forum, uh, a think tank, um, and the story about Tommy Robinson was that Tommy Robinson's legal fees uh, were being paid by the Middle East Forum, i.e. Um, Daniel Pipes. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> he's not the only case of uh, of not intervention. I mean, you could just say that that's simply that uh, well, why not? They have the same interests. Like, Tommy's obviously speaking out against this uh, in the UK, and then this guy comes in and says, "Hey, I also have a problem with Muslim immigration. You know, I'll come in and help you." But this isn't. This is not a rare case where it's it's so much. It's so common at this point that you've got um, the so-called far right party in France, Marine Le Pen. When her father started that party and ran it, it got attacked incessantly in France for being anti-Semitic, and that was because her father spoke out explicitly about Israel and about 
what he saw as excessive Zionist influence in French government. Mm -hmm. And so he was obviously painted as an anti-Semite and so on and so forth. That whole party underwent a total transformation when her, her, on that score, at least, when her, his daughter took over. She didn't just stop attacking Israel or Zionism as such. She went out of her way to voice her support for it. Mm. I mean, very recently, she has said that um, Israel has a right to defend herself. She's actually, I'm not even sure what her stance is on the Jerusalem embassy, but mm. countless European leaders who are of the right slash far right, who are either in power, like Orban or someone, or they're vying for power right now, like the AFD or uh, Gert Wilders in the Netherlands, um, they are going out of their way to voice their support for Israel. And in these recent horrors coming out of Israel, particularly in Gaza, where they slaughtered people, shooting up uh, 100-plus people mm -hmm. um, in the protests there recently, again, they went out of the way, not only to reverse what they would have done before, which was condemn Israel, but to actually say that, yes, Israel has the right to defend itself from, and they used the narrative given out by Tel Aviv, the hordes right. trying to cross in from Gaza and so on. So it's been a complete reversal at that level where the, the far right in Europe, traditionally seen as anti-Semitic, you know, right. fancied Hitler quite a lot, actually. Um, and suddenly they're, they're waving the Israeli flags along with the EDL banners and the English right. flag. So there's been a flip here. Yeah, well, and, and it's a pattern that's, that's popping up over and over again. Well, the thing that, the thing that suggests uh, Akenova's really involvement, let's say, or I don't know if I want to use the term Zionist, but certainly in his really involvement in, in this kind of clash of civilizations is, well, we mentioned the fact that uh, this guy, Daniel Pipes, his uh, Middle East form is funding Tommy Robinson's legal mm -hmm. uh, campaign. And actually, they, they also were, they organized the two marches. I don't know if anybody saw the marches in the UK. Yes, in free, free Tommy Free Tommy Robinson. They're really well attended and they're really organized compared to the... And they got builders over from the Netherlands to right, speak. Compared to the usual... Um, marches of of the EDL or British right-wing parties, this was a very, very polished affair. They had a stage and all that kind of stuff, and it was obviously there was money behind it. And the money money behind it to free Tommy Robinson, which they successfully did, uh, came from Daniel Pipes' his, uh, Middle East Forum. And on, the, uh, I mean, his, his Middle East Forum, which is a think tank, has, I think the director of it is a former foreign minister in the Israeli government. So it's not just some bunch of people this is fairly high level and they also said that they had been in, in in terms of their efforts to free tommy robinson they had been lobbying foreign governments to put pressure on the british government and by that they <clears throat> obviously mean uh well the most direct access they had would have been to the israeli government so they got the israeli government to pressure the british government to free tommy robinson and that's right. how tommy robinson got out of jail probably right um because so, he only did he was only there for a month or two months uh so you have this strange situation where Israel is working hand in hand with the most extreme <clears throat> kind of right wing anti Islam groups in the UK and probably in other countries as well. Uh, obviously, I mean, obviously, that's understandable if you take, people might say, a cynical approach, but it's obviously a realistic approach is that um, Israel has lots of reasons to want to demonize Muslims and has had for, well, probably for about 70 years. Yeah. Uh, On the face it, of it, they'll say, well, it's just a confluence of interests no. that are in here and now that right. are 
Um, yeah, we 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 don't like Muslims, and uh, you know, right wing nationalists, English people don't like Muslims. So let's uh, let's help each other out, type thing. But um, <clears throat> it's hard to see how um, you can well, you can't divorce obviously Israel from nine eleven and the war on terror that resulted because a lot of it there are you know, American politicians who are on record as having said that. Um, you know, they invaded Iraq. Of course, people should remember that Iraq had no, no involvement, had nothing to do with 9-11. Mm-hmm. There was never any evidence at the time or since that Iraq had anything to do with 9-11. And people question, people should, some people question, and a lot more, more people should question why Iraq was invaded at all as a result, as a direct result or a direct response to 9-11 when there was never any suggestion that Iraq had anything to do with it. They may as well have picked, you know, uh, pick some African country and invade that. For doing nine eleven, or pick uh, you know Brazil maybe or Argentina or Australia or you know Micronesia, <laughs> you know pick anywhere. I mean, why not? If you can pick Iraq, why pick pick anywhere else? <clears throat> so obviously, that was uh, there was another <clears throat> reason completely why uh, Iraq was invaded. Nothing to do with nine eleven, and Amer- American politicians are on at the time and since are on record as having said that it was basically for Israel that the Israeli lobby in the U.S. was pushing for uh, the overthrow of Saddam Hussein. Yeah. Um, now that is the beginning, probably. Uh, you can leave out Afghanistan because it's a bit further afield, but and it's a much smaller population. It's much more isolated. But Iraq was the beginning of what we're experiencing today. The nine eleven was the beginning of what we're seeing in Western countries uh, today. Uh, today, it's um, everything that's happened is happened has happened is yeah. happening now. Is a direct result of 9/11 and the invasion of Iraq. You can follow it through. Yeah. Um, so, and if that was done for Israel, um, and now we see the Israelis uh, influencing this kind of division in Western countries in the UK and or France. the reaction to the consequences of yeah, or, well, they're, 9/11 they're, they're and the kind of, war terror. Yeah. And the Israelis are, are have a hand today in, in provoking that the division in, in Western countries of the the, the polemic, the, the the separation into extreme left and right. I don't know. I mean, they don't. They seem to be pretty much against Jeremy Corbyn, uh, who's, who'd be on the on the kind of left. So you definitely put Israel on the extreme right. I mean, when they're hanging out with Tommy Robinson and paying his legal fees, you can't get any closer than that. Yeah. And hanging out with, I mean, this is a classic, another weird twist in the tale on the other side of Europe, hanging out with um, Orban. Right. Netanyahu's government specifically intervened when uh, a hue and a cry was raised over the fact that the fact, the alleged fact that Orban ran his recent election campaign using the shtick of anti-Semitism, specifically because they were running poster ads with George Soros as a big menacing mm. Uh, interfere meddler in chief in hung- Hungary's affairs, which is true. Everyone knows that. But the twist that was put on it by the international media in general was that, oh, look, you see, there's a big, powerful Jew that's being used. Therefore, it's anti-Semitic. But Israel specifically had their ambassador intervene and say, no, no, no problem with that. And right. Netanyahu has since appeared with Orban to congratulate him on right. his electoral victory. So, it, yeah, and yes, at the same time, then he will. Uh, they they won't raise a hue and cry, or they won't intervene, so to speak, when anti-Semitism is used against Jeremy Corbyn. Right, they're fully behind it. 
<clears throat> so it's just used. I mean, it exposes the anti anti-Semitism as a kind of trope that's just used to to shut shut someone down. It appears I mean, so it's inconsistent. Like, it's basically like but... calling someone a, a pedophile. When you call someone an anti-Semite, you may as well be calling them a pedophile. Yeah. Because they immediately, I mean, it, it demonizes them, it smears them, and that's it. They, they, they shut up, they've shut up, you know? <clears throat> and of course, the people who, who have that are very lucky in, in, in having that uh, trope or that meme to, to use and, and, and the fact that it's so effective. Uh, because there's not many other things where you can throw at someone today uh, in a legitimate way uh, and even be applauded for doing it, for being a defender of, of Jews and being a, uh, an anti, uh, anti, anti-Nazi. But I mean, it's, it's, yeah, like you were saying before, it's so confused, you know, the Nazis are right-wing, right? Even though they're socialists, but anyway, they're, they're, they're right-wingers, right? They're, the Nazis are KKK, Nazis, fascists, they're all super, super extreme right-wing. Right. But the rightest of the right-wing in the UK is the EDL and people like Tommy Robinson and Israel, who supposedly are the biggest anti-Nazi fighters in history, or have, have the biggest problem with Nazis, are our best friends with the extreme right in the UK. Right? The whole thing just makes a mockery of all of these labels and these names and, and shows that people uh, are so fickle and they don't care about ideologies. You know what I mean? They're, they'll just use whatever they can, they'll use whatever, they'll adopt whatever ideology and use whatever line, whatever slogan, as long as it gets them what they want. And what most of them want is some kind of, is, is some kind of power and control and notoriety or influence or, or money, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, the other thing we were thinking about was in terms of Israel being the main problem uh, in that Israel, like we've talked about this before, Israel is obviously a problem in the sense that it's a perennial, perpetual source of conflict. It promises, from its beginning, has promised to be a perpetual source of conflict because it came into uh, a part of the part of the world that was complete, almost completely, you know, Muslim, and they yeah. st- steal some land and set themselves up in opposition to the Muslims. And forevermore, we will be in opposition to the Muslims because we stole their lands. The Muslim wants some, their lands back. We're not going to give it to them, and we're going to persecute them and you know, periodically kill them and all that kind of stuff and keep it ticking over, you know. Um, so Israel has has a real motivation, like we were saying, to demonize Muslims, and by implication, most most uh, most importantly for the Israelis, demonize Palestinians uh, in the minds of Western populations. And they really don't like, they have a real problem with the fact that there's this uh, persistent lefty bleeding heart as they see pro-palestinian it. Yeah. faction in in european countries that just doesn't go away and it's bizarre because you know people can be can be encouraged or manipulated to change their minds about a lot of things when there's a lot of you know influence and power and money thrown at that campaign to make them change their minds but the Palestinian, the Palestinian thing just will not go away. The people will not let it go, you know, and it's been, because it's it's been so, there for 30, it, 40 years at this point, and it's, it's just it's not so, going away. It's so, you, you cannot make it go away because of this, the basic situation you just described. It's roughly in the heart of, if you looked at Huntington's Islamic civilization, it's smack in the heart of it. And it wasn't just a one-off incident where we can, where we could in theory say, well, come on, how far back in history are we going to go? It happened 70 years ago. You know, 
let's just accept it now. No, because when they arrived, they took apart, antagonized the people there, took a little bit more, had one war with one neighbor, took a little bit more, had one war with another neighbor. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so it's been a perennial, and they, they constantly reprovoke it themselves. Yeah, exactly. That's why they keep, and then they'll go, hmm, people are reacting badly to this. Ah, and they'll come up with these theories like Netanyahu after one of the recent Gaza assaults two years ago, where he goes, I see what the Palestinians are doing. They're dying in front of cameras so that the photos are sent around the world, so that the people around the world go, this is outrageous, you need to stop this. This makes us look bad. Well, he, did, well, he, he condemned them. He didn't just say it makes it look bad. He actually said, he actually said that, uh, that they were forcing us to kill them. Uh, forcing right. us to kill their children, like forcing us to kill their children so that they could use the pictures to make Israel look bad. It's the, how, how pathological they have to be. I mean, that's it's just like that, that's that should be like a quote in a psychology, you know, perverse psychology 101 book. You know, here's the kind of thing, uh, a kind of like totally messed up uh, kind of thought process will produce that, <laughs> you know, me killing a person killing a child. Is the child's fault and its parents, and they're actually trying to make me look like a murderer while I'm shooting the children. You see, you see how, see what they're doing. See how perverse that is. Actually, what we see is how perverse the mind of someone like Netanyahu is that comes up with that, that kind of so-called logic. You know, it's just totally twisted. It's a power of moralism. You know, um, to beat them all. But yeah, the the problem with the reason Israel's a problem is because I don't see any reason why. Um, America would have to create these kind of conflicts in the Middle East uh, in recent years uh, to remain hegemonic. Well, and and yeah, well, to to create them in such a way that and then allow or create the the influx of of refugees into European countries, and then sow that kind of chaos and social strife in those countries. It doesn't seem to be in line with keeping you know the West best and on top you know if you want your part of the world your little corner of the world to remain on top then surely one of your primary goals would be to uh, make sure that your your societies in, in in your part of the world are stable reasonably stable yeah. reasonably stable. you don't want any kind of social kind of kind of chaos and and, and collapse if you know what i mean or in the infighting amongst not just you know in, amongst the, your own people you know that's not good for you as a world power you know you're going to you're destabilizing yourself effectively and you risk bringing in new parties that become new governments that say things like you know what we're going to get out of nato yeah that kind of thing well that would be totally against us interests right? right yeah so it's, it's like it doesn't seem to that doesn't seem to be the agenda or certainly we've moved into an era when the agenda of keeping the west best and on top doesn't isn't the agenda anymore you know the agenda there seems to be it's it seems to be <clears throat> you know deductible or, or it seems to follow logically that someone either yeah they put it down to complete fecklessness which doesn't really jive with how smart these people are but yeah they put it down to that or you put it down to that someone has an agenda to actually bring uh destabilization and social chaos to western countries you know um, because there's no, like I said, there's no need for the U.S. to to engage in the kind of wars that have created this situation uh, in order to maintain its hegemony. You know, uh, the only thing, like we've been saying, the only thing that that kind of uh, those kind of destructive wars in the Middle East 
that caused the refugee crisis, that caused the destabilization of Western countries. The only, the only entity that serves or helps or that is happy that that's happening is Israel, because Israel wants Western powers to destroy and ch regime change as many Muslim countries as possible to Israel's liking, you know. And, and invariably, like we're saying, because of the perennial Palestinian-Israeli conflict that Israel keeps provoking, you're always going to have uh, a strong current of anti-Israel sentiment in the Middle East, uh, not just among the people, but eventually then among political parties and governments, necessitating Israel to call on the US to say, come and get rid of this, of this, this uh, government because we don't like it, because they don't like us for good reason. Uh, so then the West, uh, America goes in, destroys that country, creates refugees that come back to Europe and then destabilize Europe. And the only one left laughing and rubbing their hands is Israel as everything collapses around everybody else. Yeah. It's, um, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's so pathological and yet it's so consistent um, in, in its duration. You know, the war on terror sprang into Western public discourse after 9-11, of course, but it was already it was up and running at least ten years in Israel. There had of course been so called suicide bombings um that have taken place in Israel, blamed on Palestinians. Um so they already had a public discourse on the run, up and running, if you like, in Israel and they called it the war on terror and today in the war on terror this happens and so on. And then of course nine eleven happens. And it's once it's shifted to America, well the discourse because of the preceding decades of globalization mm. via America, mm -hmm. it takes on the beginning and then eventually quite quickly, in fact, it becomes a global war on terror yeah. at the level of narrative. You know, every, right. everyone knows about it now. Yeah, well, that's 9-11 did that. And so 9-11 was amazing in its, 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 its ability to impose this paradigm shift, you know what I mean, on, on the entire world because America wasn't, America was just ticking along, doing its usual imperial kind of thing around the world, but it, would, it had an interest in, in keeping things stable, you know, because ultimately it was about business and America getting good deals everywhere and all that kind of stuff, and remaining on top uh, from, a, from an economic point of view. So, but 9-11 just forced their hand into creating what we have today. And you can even say 9-11 created Donald Trump, you know, created yeah. the conditions by which Donald, Donald Trump appeared. You know, I mean, 9-11, people, you know, there's this, you and know, the meme, 9 11 9-11, 9-11, 9-11, 9-11, 9-11, 9-11 from us, well, it kind of is, you know, if you look back to nine, at that day, it totally changed, and look at everything that's happened as a result of 9-11. It, it, if it continues on the way 9-11 will go down in history as the thing that fucked up, that totally destroyed pretty much everything. Yeah. yeah at least in, in, in the Western world. You leave China out and all that kind of stuff. But if the Western world goes down, most of the most of the world will go down as well, at least to one extent or another. Some places will be, will be, will be okay, but it's also interconnected. And 9-11 was just a really, 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 really bad idea. And someone, I mean, when it gets down to who exactly, there's one figure who, he's, he's unusual. Normally, you mentioned the term eminence grise. You would normally imagine this is someone from the shadow. But here's a guy who's been the prime minister off and on of Israel for almost as long as Putin. Benjamin Netanyahu, he, he keeps recurring as being a central figure in this. I don't want to suggest any more than that, but I will just give some perspective um, on where he's coming from. Because his father was a kind of a... He was a top academic. He was an academic um, 
professor emeritus at Cornell University in the United States. Um, before that, he'd been with Jabotinsky, um, the Zionist movement in the 20s. He, in fact, was one of the first to emigrate from Eastern Europe to then mandate Palestine in 1920. So he was there. Then he went to the United States. He, then he, of course, went back to Israel. And it's, this is, by the way, why Netanyahu has an American accent. He was born and raised in the United States initially anyway. Um, yeah, so there's a little bit of a... I'm going to ask Gaudi to bring this article up. It's a Haaretz article. I think it's from this year. This is about his father primarily. He's only recently died at 102. Um, I want you to scroll down and find the paragraph beginning in a televised interview two years ago. I'm going to read it out at the same time. It's three paragraphs. I'll give you some insight into Netanyahu's mindset. It's, okay, so here we go. In a televised interview recently, he uttered Netanyahu, Bibi, the son, uttered a, a sentence which distills his worldview. Here we go. We are very simply in danger of extermination today, not just existential danger, but truly in danger of extermination. They think that the extermination, the Holocaust, is over. It isn't. It goes on all the time. I've always said that a necessary condition for the existence of any living body and for a nation is the ability to identify a danger in time, a characteristic which our nation, Israel, lost in the diaspora. You taught me, Father, how to correctly view reality and to understand what it contains within it and draw the necessary conclusions. It certainly wasn't an easy thing for you because there were always those who did not see as you did, ridiculed, laughed at, or belittled your conclusions. That's a reference to his father being... Obviously, he was in with some of the key people in the founding of Israel, but he was always considered an extremist among his peers, um, anyway, so uh, we get a little further down here. The same foresight led Father to say dozens of years ago that the threat to world peace would emerge from the same parts of the Muslim world where oil, terrorism, and nuclear go together. And it is also what led him to tell me in the early 1990s that the Muslim extremists would not rest and would attempt to bring down the Twin Towers in New York, a prediction that I included in one of my books in 1995. It's Netanyahu, it's so his, his father, father, his brother his was father also... His father in the early 1990s told him that Muslims would attempt to bring down the Twin Towers? The thing is, that may not have been a hard prediction to make if that was said after the first bombing of the World Trade Center, which happened in 93. Mm. So in a sense, 9-11, yeah, opened the floodgates, but in a way, 9-11 wasn't the first um, act in the play, you know? Yeah, but there still. There were proceeding steps. But, but that's very specific, like, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's plenty of big tall buildings in, in America, you know? Why would you say that? That's suspicious, very suspicious, you know? Actually, it, it reminds me of this guy, Daniel Pipes, that we talked about earlier on, that it's funding Tommy Robinson and fun, fun, funding the extreme right in the, in, in the UK. Uh, four months before September 11th, uh, 2001, he wrote in the Wall Street Journal that Al-Qaeda was planning new attacks on the U.S., and that Iranian operatives helped arrange advanced training for Al-Qaeda personnel in Lebanon, where they learned, for example, how to destroy large buildings. You know, there's probably other quotes from other <clears throat> Israelis and, other, and different people uh, in, in positions to know 
uh, that that say the same thing. Uh, and if you put them together, you know, it's hard to it's hard to just dismiss the idea of of kind of prior knowledge, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, on the and if, you know, on the part of of Israelis, it's hard to dismiss the idea of. And of course, it would fit very well with um, with what we said earlier on, which is that Israel has an extremely strong interest in making Muslims look bad. The world over. And also in leveraging American military power in order to, you know, deal with the Muslims. Mm. Um, and then, you know, it's just it's just a terrible conflict of interest going on there, you know. Yeah. I mean, if you see that that happens, you know, and you, and you follow that logic, and then you jump forward to today and you see that uh, Israeli organizations and Israeli you know, former Israeli foreign ministers, as in the case of in this um, guy Daniel Pipes' uh, think tank, the Middle East Forum, the, the director of it is a former uh, Israeli foreign minister, and that today people like that who were talking about 9-11, uh, you know, with apparent some level of foreknowledge or suspicion about it, uh, that today they are funding, encouraging the division uh, in European societies, that's a direct result of 9-11 and the influx of refugees that came from the wars that were initiated because of 9-11. It's all, it just gets a bit uh, bit freaky, you know? Well, the thing, let's just but, say, it, one of my pet peeves is where people come in and just go, don't you know the Jews rule the world, okay? Yeah. I mean, it's basically a millennial trope on the one hand. On the other hand, in this situation, let's go with this broadly. Israel has a vested interest. Israel also, of course, because on the face of it, it looks absurd, right? It's this tiny little country, and there's 8 billion people all around it. And you're like, well, what what do you mean, Israel? Like, a percentage of the population there is able to control all these events. Like, for example, look at the contradiction that's thrown up by the fact that the chief funder, at least that's known publicly as it's all out in the open now. All this stuff's been leaked about what he gets up to. George Soros, uh, ostensibly Jewish, not really secular, but anyway, ethnically Jewish, let's say. He's from Hungary, nominally American now, up to his eyeballs. The, the figure is $32 billion he has spent of his money in open society type, hard liberal, hard left agenda the world over. So... Where does he fit in then? I mean, he, he doesn't fit, so to speak, with Benjamin Netanyahu, who publicly, basically, uh, <laughs> publicly went out of his way to join the Hungarians, or Orban's government, in attacking George Soros in front of the whole world to see. Um, and, of course, some of the specific NGOs created by George Soros or affiliated NGOs actively work to not so much regime change Israel, but they are very much antagonistic to Netanyahu's faction, if you like. So what I'm getting at here is how would how do you square, how does one square this situation where two implacably opposed factions or two specifically two individuals are they working in concert? No. Is it consciously no? Something else going on, you know, but uh, <clears throat> two like maybe two two sides working in the middle type thing, you know. It's possible. I don't know if that if that's if it's that conscious, but certainly George Soros is a big big uh, 
exponent of what would be called leftist politics, you know, and leftist organizations, leftist groups. And if you put that together with uh, the evidence we presented of, of uh, Israeli organizations, other, other Jews, let's say, other Jewish people uh, from, from Israel or not, but certainly supportive of Israel, supporting the right wing, well, then you've got, you've got a vague kind of like, you know, through a glass darkly kind of like image of, of someone, mm. of, of there being two, you know, powers, uh, but really the same, ultimately, working the middle, basically, and working to provoke attention in, in the world and in, in, in particularly in Western societies. But I wanted to move on to uh, our other uh, detail here uh, that we want to discuss about uh, the recent, um, we're just going to do this pretty quickly, um, Recent censorship, you know, which obviously ties into the whole situation because it's um, it's part of the, the left-right uh, paradigm or division going on right now. <clears throat> we have censorship of mostly right-wing, and in recent weeks, mostly uh, right-wing um, media, uh, alternative media. Let's say not obviously not official media, uh, but alternative media, social social media accounts, etc. Obviously, it was Alex Jones that we talked about uh, previously. Uh, since then, there's been a few others have at least got temporary bans, which is you know kind of warning shots fired across across the bow. You know who who else have we had? We've had them. Um, I'm not sure that's mainly right wing. Infowars is the most high profile. It's also the most high profile because it was a complete deplatforming, so to speak. Right. So he kicked off all these things at once. And it's not like you can come back in 30 days. Right. Um, most recently, Caitlin Johnson was booted off Twitter. Mm -hmm. Then they said, oh, you can come back within 12 hours. That's interesting. What was she booted from Twitter for? Um, breach, it's always the same, isn't it? Breach of community guidelines, specifically in this case for a tweet about John McCain that she hopes he dies or something like that. Or gloating that, you know, it's that, about time well, he yeah. dies. <clears throat> yeah, uh, she said that he was responsible for an awful lot. He spent his life yeah. basically working, Slaughtering for, people. Work, working for the deaths of... Of many innocent people, and uh, and it's interesting that you know, so Twitter removed her for for saying that breach of guidelines. Girl, what guidelines would there be? Something about insulting, insulting people. People, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, but obviously it's true at the same time. If you look at John McCain's history, you know, uh, John McCain does have a lot of blood in his hands, you know. But you're not allowed to say that. So well, you're not allowed to say <clears throat> say truthful things, you know. Yeah, allowed, not allowed. It's all going to be, it's such a gray area because in this case, a um, ton of people reported the post. Right. Um, and that often happens. Often, I think on YouTube, if you get one report of someone saying, this has a bit of something I made, therefore copyright, or someone saying I'm insulted, but I think I think they will ban first and ask questions upon appeal later. Mm. Um, so that's... That, well, that basic problem right there, anyone can snitch on anyone else. Right. What's going to happen? Or a bunch of trolls, a bunch of fake Twitter accounts can report a video. Yeah. A bunch of Hasbara, Hasbara trolls perhaps. Yeah, there's a video we wanted to play with, uh, a short video, uh, an audio of uh, Twitter, uh, Twitter CEO. He, he only has one name, Jack. Everybody calls him Jack. I don't think he has a surname because he was... I think he was spawned in a lab somewhere or something like that. Anyway, uh, just go ahead and play that little bid. The president called you out for shadow banning. What is the truth around that idea? So I, I think a lot of the, in, the the statements behind the statement and the question behind the question is, um, look, shadow banning is a very widely defined term. There's not one single definition. Um, so... The, 
definition that we found that seems to resonate with the most people is um, you know, not amplifying particular messages. Or if someone puts out a, a tweet, hiding that tweet from everyone uh, without that person who tweeted it knowing about it. So, but the real question behind the question is, are we doing something according to political ideology or viewpoints? And we are not, period. We do not look at content with regards to political viewpoint or ideology. We look at behavior. And we use that behavior. So as you said, we don't look at things from a political or ideological viewpoint. We don't ban people from political or ideological viewpoints. We don't look at that. We look at behavior. Mm -hmm. What's the difference? That's well, if someone's behavior is informed by their political or, or ideological viewpoint, yeah, right, right, exactly. This it's, is the CEO of Twitter, who, yeah. who supposedly is—I don't know if he's meant, he's meant to be a smart person, but he just talked a little nonsense there. I mean, if you look at someone's behavior, if I go to a gay pride parade and I see behavior, I can infer a political viewpoint or ideological viewpoint from the behavior. So he's full of shit. Of course he does. If he looks at behavior, then he's going to, it's political and ideological. So if he bans people for the behavior, then he's banning people for political and ideological uh, viewpoints. Carry on. As a signal to, uh, to add to relevance. We need to constantly show that we are not adding our own bias, which I fully admit is, is, left, is, is more left-leaning. Uh, and I think it's important to... <clears throat> We need to make sure we're not adding to bias, which is fully left-leaning. Well, which I fully admit is left-leaning. So we should not have any bias, but we do. All right, thanks very much, Jack. <laughs> thanks for thanks for spelling that out. The point here is that obviously, and this is a guy who you know his people, his minions, uh, oversaw the temporary banning of Caitlin Johnson for saying that. John McCain's a warmonger and he's killed, he's responsible for the deaths of a lot of people, which is categorically true. Uh, so his leftist ideological viewpoint and, and those of the people in Twitter that he employs obviously informed uh, the decision to temporarily ban Caitlin Johnson for saying bad things about John McCain, which is bizarre because John McCain, because he's a lefty, but John McCain's fully on the right. Surely someone like Jack Dorsey and the Twitter bots and, and, and the Twitter minions would all be big up in anybody who took a shot at John McCain because he's a diehard conservative, supposedly. No, because left and right isn't... It doesn't matter anymore. Well, you know what else? Well, uh, no, it, 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 left and right people across the board and groups of websites like Counterpunch or whoever, all the way to right individuals like Mark Dice, they're all getting hit. Everyone depend. It just depends on the. It usually depends on the specific content. Well, it, it and the, basically, the more truthful it is, and the more punishing it is, punishing in quotes to the official narrative. But it becomes a problem. Well, here's here's the other thing. Uh, if we put all these people together, Twitter, Facebook, blah blah blah, YouTube, that they're all part of the lefty, left leaning kind of uh, Marxist ideologues, or ideal ideology that's that's kind of you know that all the conservatives have to fight against. Um, well, then Facebook recently, for example, um, again, temporarily banned uh, a website, VenezuelaAnalysis.com, mm -hmm. yeah. which is basically the only English language uh, 
a website that gives in-depth uh, reporting on what's happening in Venezuela, and they're very much pro-Venezuela, they're very pro-Maduro and anti-American, anti-American anti imperialism, all that kind of stuff. And that's what they say um, when in their in their post on the web on their on their Twitter feed, they had to go to Twitter to announce that they were banned from Facebook. And they basically said that the only things that they put up in the previous days when, before Facebook banned us was um, a talking about uh, the attempted uh, assassination of Maduro, attempt, assassination of Maduro, and other uh, other details about about American influence in Venezuela. And that's fully again that's fully a leftist thing because the Venezuelan government is supposedly radically leftist. Mm -hmm. So surely Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and stuff should be supporting Venezuela analysis and not banning them for pointing out the excesses or the the crimes of U.S. imperialism in Venezuela. <laughs> but but then maybe you get into a corporate point where basically this these people are they're, 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 these platforms like Twitter and, and Facebook and and YouTube are serving the interests of the U.S. political elite, and at that point there is no left or right ideology. So anything that, as long as you, so basically today by any of these so-called leftist platforms, you'll get deplatformed or banned for being too right-wing. But you'll also get deplatformed for any for saying anything that this is American exceptionalism, which is kind of right-wing, right? Because right? it's pro-imperialist. So these. Uh, well, anyway, uh, it's a bit confusing. As it's, you, as you can but um, one thing I, I noticed was that censoring of Alex Jones, the banning of Alex Jones is Infowars and all that kind of stuff. Not that it really matters. He's a bit of a crazy person, but um, <clears throat> it kind of it just happened without a much of a... I mean, a lot of people, a lot of noisy people are making making a bit of a ruckus about it, but it, it's kind of done and dusted type thing. You know, it's 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 gone and passed with not much more than a, a bit of a whimper, you know? Um and and but now people are expecting more to happen. Basically, there's going to be more the platform. It's just the first the first uh, shot, you know, in the in in the new censorship of 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 truth, let's say. Um, but the people who are up in arms about it and talking about it, you know, particularly the kind of alt right type people, you know, uh, people have long form podcasts, Joe Rogan and Stephen Crowder and people like that on YouTube, um, who are sounding the battle cry and stuff. They don't really seem to realize that they're just that they're playing into a, a kind of a dynamic there, that there's a broader dynamic that they're missing, which is that obviously by deplatforming and banning Alex Jones, you're going to get a bunch of right-wing conservative type people up in arms about censorship, which mm -hmm. is going to just entrench them in their positions, which was which just, it doesn't help, doesn't solve the situation, you know. Well, it's it, it spawned Senate hearings and right. uh, another one of those, Diamond and Silk, those right. two African-American ladies have been up there defending their peace on the one hand on the face of it it's like oh well good at least it's somewhere somewhere there's a venue for them to voice their response to it and plead their case but um yeah it the, the broader point here is a lot of the sites in the united states the conservative leaning like gateway pundit um they're only seeing and they're pumping out the lists of bloggers slash website from alex jones to diamond and silk 
who are being targeted because they're conservatives. Right. And they're completely ignoring the 20 other who would make up an alternate list of lefties, in quotes, who are also getting it. You right. mentioned Venezuela analysis. com. The biggest one from Latin America last week was well, kicked tel- off Telesor. Telesor. That's like yeah. RT for Latin America. It was right. booted off Facebook. So we're talking about general censorship here then, really. Oh, yeah. It's not just about left or right. It's basically there's a push for, for general censorship and, and sanitizing the, the discourse in, on, on social media. That everything has to be above board. You can't say anything bad or about anything. Basically, everything has to be... Everything has to be polite and nice. Jordan, and Jordan Peterson said they've opened Pandora's box because mm. they went from saying we're just platforms, right. we're not publishers, and now they're saying we're publishers. We decide what we're does and regulate. does not, and where are they going to go? And you can see it's probably a testimony to the difficulty they're having with deciding what to do and when. That sometimes someone is totally banned. Sometimes they get three strikes and they're out for a while. Sometimes they're out altogether. Sometimes they're only down for 12 hours. Sometimes they get a 30-day, and it's coming back. Sometimes you can appeal it successfully and so mm. on. They're, it's all in flux, and it's like, what the hell do we do? And I think Jack Dorsey, in fairness to them, him and Zuckerberg, do you remember those hearings a few months ago mm. when Zuckerberg was hauled up there? Yeah, we all made fun of him, and that was fun to do, but the guy was actually sitting there going, well, I'm not supposed to be here. You're, you're basically asking me, to be the censor. Mm-hmm. How, the, how do we know? I don't know when to, Jesus. And he really, he's sincere, so to speak, in at least that he is not able to morally tell because he is a bit of a robot what is or is not proper. But he was being pounded at by these congressmen and they have voices behind them too saying, you better sort this shit out or we're going to pull whatever resources we ha- we have to to basically trash your company. We'll threaten to regulate you We'll stop the CIA backing or whatever other DARPA type things give Facebook the legs it needs mm. to stand. You know, he's like, Oh, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, whatever you say. And he's trying his best to mimic the orders he's getting from on high. Mm. So I wouldn't direct, if I was getting angry about it, I wouldn't be directing it so much at these CEOs who are really just bless them, they're a bit naive and they're learning now about power and information mm. in a way that their ideological roots when they were beginning their projects never really taught them. Mm. Um, right. They're all learning like the rest of us that there's an, a, a powerful narrative dominating center, maybe not located in one place, but in existence and it is, t- it decides what is and is not. And they're all rapidly, it's like that book about how in Nazi Germany people they weren't really sure what the Fuhrer wanted. But what they would do is look to the Fuhrer and try to guess in their minds what rules he wanted implemented and go about and test it. Did that please the Fuhrer? Yes, it didn't. Or no, it didn't, Christ. Oh, but we won't pass that law. Oh, but they like this law. Right, get them in there. Get the Gestapo out there. Everyone is basically looking to the Fuhrer, except that the Fuhrer today isn't the moustache guy going like this. It's basically pretty nameless and faceless. Mm-hmm. Maybe Brennan's one of them, but uh, that's, yeah. <laughs> he too would be a bad man for someone else, but um, he's he's going to be pretty close to the kind of circles where, yeah, the, the orders come down or wishes are expressed and somebody please sort this out. And then everyone starts jumping around trying to second guess whatever the powers that be, the gods that run this, this whole shit show want. Um, and they're... they're those guys are dancing like the rest of us, you know. What mm. can we say that well, we get kicked off YouTube for saying this? Well, Sounds like a recipe for chaos. It is. 
it's a complete shit show. On that happy note, I think we'll leave it there for this week, folks. We uh, hope you enjoyed the show. We hope you liked this video. If you did, click the like button and subscribe button and also the notification belly thing because that helps us. So until then, thanks for watching. See you, See you next later. Week. Bye, all. <laughs>